Welcome to Man Reads Monday. I am Aaron Ventura. He is Jacob Rush. Let's get back to work. Jacob, what are we working through today? Today we're in chapter 9 of Sierra Wiley's Man of the House, and we are finishing up uh, section 3 or part 3 uh, of this is household economics, household polity. Is that right? Yep. And then we're then we're moving to the last section here, which is outside the house. So this is sort of uh, crowning, finishing off this you know this picture that Wiley's been building of the productive household. Mm-hmm. What, you know the foundations, what's inside the house, what constitutes the house, and again, sort of in these last couple of chapters with gravit- gravitas and piety, um, what are the the virtues kind of required to enable this to function? The structures within the house that are going to govern it, and then that's going to take us into sort of the world, right? Yeah. So house isn't house is what you defend, house is what you come back to, but it's not where you end. You yeah. don't just it's not the only thing that there is. So, so this chapter is called Piety. And yeah. before we talk about how he's going to talk about piety, when you think of pious or piety, what do you think of? I think of the, uh, do you know that uh, photo, that like stock photo of the old man with the beard and he's like, so yeah. he's got his hands. I saw this in the Naz, uh, at the, the Naz, Naz church. Yeah. I mean, but then I was like, oh, this is everywhere. There's like yeah. a man and a woman. Uh, there's two different pictures on. I feel like it's like a stock, and people put it on the cover of even things like I think I've seen a Ryle book. Okay, that, that it's a really happened. famous painting right. or something. I yeah, just know. like a bearded guy, and he's got his hands, you know, like the prayer hands and piety, and it's like this devotional, or you think of pious old lady, mm-hmm. right? You think of, and then there's a negative too, pietistic. Yeah, right. So pietistic is almost like a pejorative. And within reformed circles, you have even whole groups of people where you'd be call, called, this is the pietists. And, and they were often, um, there, there's this whole debate in Presbyterian circles about the church's relationship to the world. And right. there is the argument for those who would be called like transformationists. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this would be like the Tim Keller crowd who's who believes yeah. the church is given to go out into culture and to transform it. Right. And you have like really conservative, like, PCA OPC guys who say no, that's not actually the church's job. It's it's preach the gospel. It's more witness. Um, yeah, we give witness, but it's administer the sacraments, teach the yeah. word. It's kind of within the church walls, so to speak. Right. And then there was there's this argument about okay, you're being pietistic. Mm. You're keeping your religion just uh, inter- in, internalized yeah. or inside. It's in, it's all in your head. You're the frozen chosen. Yep. And then you have the kind of uh, Kellerite trans transformationists mm. who who say that's wrong. We need to go this other direction. Mm. And C.R. Wiley, um, so, so we would be uh, some brand of transformationist. We believe that yeah. the gospel is meant to transform the culture, mm-hmm. actually to be a counterculture that changes the culture, that's dominion within it. And and Wiley's kind of angle on this is within the household, and he's going to say piety used to be kind of the glue uh, that. Um, the household uh, was the glue that made society and the cosmos stay together. Mm. And as soon as you lo- lose household piety, you're going to lose piety everywhere else. Yeah. So it's kind of like if you have a disordered house, why would you be able to have an ordered society? Right. He says that's a contradiction you can't. 
right. do that. And we, sort of we've all we've been talking this whole time about the house is a microcosm of reality. Civil society and even the church is made up of households. And yeah. so if, if you lose it, right to your point, if you lose it there, then you're going to lose it at a larger scale. Yeah. So he's going to say household pi piety, what is it for? It is for helping people kind of keep their eyes on the prize and to make sure they know that sacrifice, their sacrifices are meaningful. So uh, it's hard work to be a member of a household that is productive. It, it's work that you're doing, and it's going to require certain sacrifices to uh, take on that role, embrace that role, persist in it. And he says, like, unless that is connected to a bigger thing, mm -hmm. then it's you're going to run out of steam. And piety is that thing that's going to keep you going. And he's going to say the household is this religious institution, or at least once upon a time it was. Hmm. And acts of piety, things like worship, confession, good works, etc., actually maintained harmony in the cosmos. And you see this in even the ancient conception of the world. If you believe that, say, certain, uh, if there's a famine in the land, hmm. uh, you're like, okay, what's going on? At least they knew there was a god of rain or God right. of sun, uh, fertility gods. And if the crops aren't coming, we must be doing something wrong. Right. It's like the ancients at least had that one up on us. Right. Because we think, as he's going to say, in machine-like mechanistic terms. Right. We are anti-supernaturalists uh, in that sense, where we think it's just all... Uh, the world is a machine, yeah. and if it's broke, then, okay, there's something wrong with the machine. Mm. But we don't think uh, worship is, so there's something going on worship-wise. Right. At least they knew, we need to sacrifice some people. <laughs> we got to get this thing turned over. Like, let's start over. Yeah. Um, and, and in that sense, the pagan world is actually more in the truth than the modern world is today because at least they recognize the central the centrality of worship to the way the cosmos functions whereas we hide behind secularism and try to say yeah there is no connection between why there's fires in California and right. what people are doing in California it's like they right. said MacArthur we're going to throw you in jail if you if you guys try to open up for worship and God's like all right here's some smoke Right. right. We're warning. We're right. warning you. <laughs> right. Yeah. No. So I, I think that that point about secularism is is the, the thing we've basically imbibed this mentality that we've cut off the inner world and the exterior world, mm -hmm. even Christians. So piety. Right. Where do where mine goes is sort yeah. of like private religion, closet religion, prayer, maybe like emotions, the inner man. But there's no necessary uh, necess necessary uh, connection to the outer, to the yeah. external. Um, yeah, it, your comment on the the fires, uh, Governor Inslee, he's Washington, right? Yeah, he's Washington. Uh, you know, he said, we need to stop talking about you know wildfires, <laughs> and instead we need to start talking about climate fires. Climate fires, right? So, <laughs> so it's this weird thing where, on, on the one hand, we are imbibing this secularity, where yeah, we are saying there is no structure there is no correspondence between morality ethics and the world around us and yet there's almost like an alternative again kind of not a not a whether there's a god but which so like we're going to find something else we're going to build a different cosmos <coughs> to try to explain 
this phenomenon. Yeah, so C.R. Wiley's going to say, okay, how did we end up here? And he says, well, we divorced consciousness from the cosmos. He did exactly what you said. A religion became private, individual, inward thing. It was disconnected from all the stuff that matters. And he says, this made religion and household religion meaningless and irrelevant rather than the central way of finding meaning in life. Hmm. People now think meaning comes from where? Within us. We make our own meaning. But if you think about it, that's kind of just sad. And um, you have this just thirst, this desire for meaning and purpose that's in everybody. Hmm. And, and it's like, if you don't have a God that's giving meaning and shape to everything you do, you're kind of like a guy who's playing video games. And, uh, you know, there's all these, like, world-building video games, Minecraft and right. stuff. And it's like, these are these are really fun games because they get at your dominion impulse to, to build yeah. something. Right. But the sad thing is you realize, okay, why that might be fun to do in a video game, if that's your life yeah. without meaning and purpose, it's like... That's kind of despairing. It's kind of depressing. Yeah. To, if you spent your whole day playing video games, building something in this virtual world, right? Like you can lie to yourself all day long and say that that was meaningful. Like I, but we all still live here in the real world, and you didn't actually produce anything yeah. in the real world, and and therefore we're trying to like get meaning out of nothing we're trying right. to we're trying to do what only god can do wow. that's a really sad thing like that the unbelieving world doesn't have like i just think mm. that like that's just depressing dude so um so he says he says uh there's a section here can machines be pious and he says meaninglessness has seeped into everything the universities obviously but also the arts politics, business, and even religious institutions. Since religious institutions were established for the sole purpose of revealing the hidden meaning of reality, this is a problem. Hmm. And this is a fire quote. Some religions are committing suicide in slow motion. Uh, I just love that, yeah. that phrase. Committing suicide in slow motion. That's, that's our nation. Even ostensibly conservative religions have turned inward. They have left the world for others to define. Hmm. So, so this is what happens when there is no meaning in the home, no meaning from God. The world becomes this meaningless place. Right. And when the church does this, when religion uh, does this as well, they actually leave the world. They're seeding the place of yeah. giving definition to the world hmm. and failing to, to be the priest people uh, that... Uh, just like Israel was meant to show the nations what God, the one true God is like, the church is meant to do that too. And, and when we stop doing that, people are going to be killing themselves, committing suicide, uh, looking for meaning in all the wrong places. This is why conversations about household and about piety, even some of these things that we would peg as like cultural conversations. And a lot of Christians are like, hey, back at, you know, sort of the pietistic, you know, leave those things alone. Yeah. It's actually why they're so important because what it, it reveals what you think about reality. Yeah. And, and, and whether you've actually, like you said, seeded the ground to, and he kind of pegs the enemy here, uh, materialism, Darwinism. And, and it, it, again, it always goes down to the reductio. If you are, you know, if you and I are just what this you know, how does Pastor Doug say it? Protoplasm yeah. does at this 
temperature. Yeah. You know, if I'm just Dr. Pe- you know, Dr. Pepper fizz and you're just Mountain Dew fizz. Yeah. And that's all we are. And then you add the idea of evolution and mechanism. You've got this hard determinism. Then we couldn't help but to do these things. And you're right. Life becomes meaningless. I have. There's no higher purpose. There's no higher consciousness. You've gotten rid of a mind. You've gotten rid of God and a yeah. person. And so now we've got to come up with it ourselves. And it's like, no. This is why these conversations are so important because it reveals whether we've seeded these conversations about household. Uh, to the culture at large. Yeah, he says on the bottom of page 89, he says, households will not last if they are merely little islands of meaning in a sea of meaninglessness. Right. So so it's not enough to just have a house of mm. meaning if the rest of the ocean is <clears throat> is meaningless. Yeah. And, and uh, then he goes on this kind of aside to talk about creation as a temple. So yeah. the, the tabernacle is a, is a new creation. The temples are a new creation. But what is a temple? A temple is a home for, for God. It's where God lives. The temple is a miniature universe. And he's going to say at the bottom of page 91, the whole point of that little uh, aside is this. He says, here's the point. Our houses are what they are because they, they are in some small way tiny replicas of the cosmos itself. Yeah. So the temple is a miniature cosmos, and our houses are miniature, miniature yeah. uh, temples of sorts. And that's going to inform kind of the rest of the conversation here. Any comments on that before we move on? Yeah, I think that whole section here, just to tie it to some of the themes we've traced throughout this book, is a, is a um, sort of backhanded rebuke of the manosphere, um, you know, Joe Rogan, Jordan Peterson, uh, you know, types of thinking. Uh, insofar as they are getting certain things right about the household, right, and are actually sort of in in tune with reality, but then they're placing them smack dab in the middle of meaningless, yeah. right? That line was really great. The um, households will not last if they are merely little islands of meaning in a sea of meaningless. So say you read the 12 rules for life yeah. and you apply it to a T and you have dominion, right, in this sort of, of your life and of your sphere, great. What does Ecclesiastes say? Yeah. Vanity is vanity. Who cares? Who cares? Great. So, you know, I saw evil under the sun. I build up my household and then someone else comes and inherits it. Yeah. So I think that's really critical (laughs) and places us at a unique, as Christians and Christian men in particular, unique opportunity to speak to um, those who are reacting against feminism and reacting against the the (laughs) effeminacy. By also saying, "Hey, what you what you're wanting for is not going to last," and it, to be honest, that's kind of some of the sad thing about Peterson, is like he's he I think is smart enough to realize that some of this uh, actually turns into meaninglessness in his own life. Yeah. He's even it drives you insane. Yeah, right. Me, uh, if you're a man working with no hope, yeah. it's like you're gonna you're gonna go crazy. You're gonna medicate. You're gonna do all sorts of strange things and get into all kinds of addictions. This is why people kill themselves, right? Yeah. Um, he's going to go into a section about actual architecture, and we're talking both metaphorically and really. And uh, it's funny, this is something that uh, maybe I got it from Wiley uh, a few years ago when I first read this book, uh, but I've been thinking, I actually just got this book oh. over here. 
It's a big heavy book. It's like 50 bucks. Whoa. It's, this is the complete visual guide to building a house. And I've got another book. So, so there's cool. lots of pictures in Whoa. here. And I just read the section on, or I'm working through the section on how you build a foundation. And uh, this is uh, just a really fascinating, enjoyable book. I thought uh, this is, you know, building a physical house and there's stuff I'm learning about. One of the cool things is, uh, I, wasn't, I wasn't planning on talking about this, but it's just so, so cool. Um, the first... Where is it? The very first section on building foundation. He says, the foundation of a house serves two basic functions. Okay, what do you think the foundation of a house serves? Mm. Yeah, and this is not like a, I don't know who this person is. I, it's not like a Christian book. This is like a building manual. Yeah. It says, first, the foundation, it protects the rest of the house from the harmful effects of the soil. I was just like, whoa, this is Genesis 3, right? What God curses the the land the the soil the ground and that's why God gives all these uh, uh, laws in Leviticus because the land is cursed the whole reason why there's clean and unclean animals some you can some you can eat some you can't is whether they are walking on the the ground that, that is they're cursed. wearing shoes yeah right right yeah, <laughs> yeah. Or, or or not it says second the foundation serves as a transition from the irregular surface of the land to the level plumb and square surfaces of the house. Hmm. So here you have the, the function of dominion where nothing in creation is perfectly square or perfectly circular. And your foundation is this taking something that's totally uneven and stuff, and then you make it straight. Hmm. I was thinking, man, there's so many... Right. Uh, there's a reason that Jesus is called the cornerstone, the foundation, the rock. And, and I thought, uh, it goes on on that section about protecting you from the harmful effects of the soil. It says, by holding the frame of the house off of the ground, the foundation keeps it a safe distance from the moisture, frost, termites, mildew, rot-producing fungi, and other organisms that live in the ground. And I just read that thinking, I think like everyone kind of knows that, right? course you need a foundation mm. but we don't realize that if you were to just build your house on the sand right jesus talked <laughs> yeah. about this yeah your your house will eventually rot yeah like it's it's not going to last your house has to be built on on the rock well so anyways uh that's great that, that's my little aside but that's uh, our next book yeah, <laughs> that's our next, yeah. Um, but uh, my wife ellen and i we've been we've been talking about if we were to build a house one day, say in 10, 20, 30 years, who knows if, yeah. we, if we ever will be able to. But I was like, you know, uh, I, w I was in Budapest uh, some years ago. And the thing about Budapest is that you have these buildings that are almost like the size of an entire city block. But there's not really like windows on the outside. Mm. There, it's kind of like a bunch of fortresses. So you're driving down these these streets, and they're just kind of like these square fortresses, and they all have like shutters. Maybe there's windows, but there's there's shutters where you can close them all. And then when you go in, it's kind of like entering a castle. But this is how like all the the apartments and houses are built. And let's say it's like five, four, three, four, five stories high, and that's like your apartment complex. And it's so different from how we do it here. So there, you go in and you have a central shared, like open air atrium, mm -hmm. basically. And and so you're, everything's like inverted where you have privacy on the inside, the walls are the fortress, and it protects, protects you from what's outside. Yeah. And what we do now is we've turned everything inside out where 
instead of having like your garden or yard or pool, you know, your water feature in the middle of your house protected within the walls, mm -hmm. we do everything opposite. You have a front yard maybe in a backyard or you have a shared yard yard space maybe or right. we go to parks and we have porches and we have big windows and he's going to say on uh, that <clears throat> on page 94 in this little aside on household architecture that uh, classical roman houses and traditional chinese houses were laid out this way he says both shielded their occupants from prying eyes the exterior walls were windowless and i just read that as like man this just reminds me of of budapest yeah so I started looking up, I was on Pinterest, because I was like, well, I don't know where to find it. So I'm on Google Images, Pinterest, looking up, uh, do people still make houses like this? Because this would be so cool. I just love the idea of having like a, a courtyard or an atrium within your house. Yeah. And, and there's some people have tried to make it like a comeback in certain places. Sure, yeah. And, and one of the reasons you actually can't do this in most places is because you can't build to the lot line. Right. now so you have to have a certain distance from the road um, but when you can build to the lot line it actually makes sense to to build like this yeah um, and, and so I say all of this to just say what we build reflects what we believe our beliefs are going to have real-world impact in something like architecture and there's a lot for us to learn from observing the way that we are building things right now, the way we have built things at different periods of time, and the reason why. Uh, one, one last example of this would be where you used to put the kitchen. <laughs> the kitchen used to be in a Roman house. The kitchen would be at the back of the house because the smoke, right, you're cooking open fire, whatever, to, to keep the smell of your butchering animals or whatever away from where you're actually eating and right. and, ha and enjoying time with your family, your bedroom and stuff right now. Uh, now we've ha we've taken dominion over a lot of this, so we can control smells with fans and stuff. Right, it may actually smell good, right? Yeah. You want to be yeah, in you the living room. Yeah, you want that. You want the, the kitchen for a lot of people is the central mm. kind of place of festivity and home right. and fun. Dining room, uh, yeah. But I think it's worth it for us to just think about what does our architecture that actually does shape the way we live Right, so uh, our, as much as we are shaping it, it also shapes us. Uh, pondering what does this tell us about our beliefs and what beliefs is it reinforcing? Okay, that's my yeah, long yeah, yeah. rant. Any, anything you wanted to say on that? No, I mean, and just to your point, he says he, you know, one, he points out a typical architectural fad, which is the ranch style house. Yeah. Right, you know, uh, here, uh, yeah, here there's. I don't really know what the architecture is like in Idaho. If there's any sort of consistency, a lot of people have basement units. So yeah. there's and it's hilly here, so there's upper and lower stories. Yeah. You know, but I mean, in Texas, you know, I've seen, I don't. You got all that space. No, yeah, so and you just sprawl. Exactly, <laughs> and so that's what all the houses look like. And he makes the he's making the argument, like you're saying, that this is actually reflecting. Um, he he gives the analogy like this. So you have the upper story and the lower story. Yeah. And the upper story would be metaphorical or analogical to God. God is in heaven. He does what he pleases. He reigns over the earth. And then we're on the we're on the ground floor. We're yeah. uh, and so God's above us. We're below. And he says actually the ranch style house where you're flattening the second to the first yeah. is reflective of a just a larger um, philosophical move where we're saying this is all that there is. The universe yeah. is just a big sprawl. Yeah. You know. Um, now we're we saying Christians you're not, you know, you can't build a two story house. 
No. It's sinful yeah, yeah, to yeah, live yeah. in a ranch. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. Just like start, uh, yeah, that would be a fun blog post. Yeah. Um, no, but he's saying, again, to your point, that these things are reflecting the ways that we're thinking about reality. If houses are foundational, which yeah. I think by now... And if can... they're miniature temples or whatever. Yeah, yeah. That matters. Uh, so let's say you say, well, well, C.R. Wiley, didn't you know that the tabernacle was a one-story house? And, and you would be right in one sense, but you'd also be wrong in another because the tabernacle, which is a miniature cosmos, just like Noah's Ark was a miniature cosmos. Shout mm. out to Jim Jordan through new eyes. <laughs> uh, re read that Hashtag book if you want. Through new eyes. Yeah, through new eyes. <laughs> but the, uh, the tabernacle is kind of like if you were to take the cosmos and then just like lay it, lay it flat, where right. as the priest is walking into it, he is ascending, uh, into the heavenly places to the most holy place right and whether god was like uh there's no way you guys are going to try to build this uh, uh foldable transportable movable mount miniature mounted right um but but that is what it symbolizes so uh even the way you let's say you do have a ranch style house you could still actually structure it in such a way that the the deeper you go into it the more privacy there is so right for example uh, and we all do this to some extent. I've never walked into a house, except maybe Josh Doctor when they had twins and were living in like a one-bedroom apartment. You never walk into a house and are in the bedroom. Right. Right? No, <laughs> so no. even we know like, Whoa. that'd be kind of weird. You don't yeah. walk into the house and you're in the bathroom or yeah. in the shower. Mm -hmm. so, so we do have some concept of privacy and personal space. And, and we tend to put those in the inner sanctum place. Yeah, place. we have holy places. Yeah, we and, and that's exactly how we should be thinking of it. And C.R. Wiley's going to say uh, here on page ninety-five, uh, you have you play a symbolic, even quasi-sacramental role in mm. the hierarchy of the cosmos. You are the priest of your house. Okay, so of course you could go weird, really weird places with this, but but yeah, that's true. You play this kind of quasi-sacramental role as the head of your house. Yeah, where you are. Uh, you're an image of God. You're representing mm. something of God's character as a as a father, mm -hmm. and and you are, as a father, as a husband, supposed to reflect what God is like. Yeah. Oh, sorry. Yeah. Go ahead. No. And the key here is again, going back. You know, trying to connect. Okay, how do we get here to this app? To you know, um, where are we going with this? The problem with the this idea of piety is that we've disconnected the inner from the outer. And so what we want to do here is these things sometimes that we even know sort of abstractly, we want to learn how to more and more uh, externalize them. Uh, even in the ways that we've talked about on this podcast before about, you know, the masculinity, putting it into practice. And sometimes that's awkward. It takes, it takes um, a real effort to take, you know, what you believe and what you know to be true and to put it into reality. So, so that's what that we're doing. So we're in this section now of, you know, how are we applying piety, yeah. right? And, and what are ways that we can begin that process of externalizing our piety yeah. in our own households? Yeah. And it's understandable why, especially evangelicals, make such a big deal about the inner life. And in some ways, it's because a kind of surface reading of the Gospels seems to imply that what really matters is only what God sees. And that's mm -hmm. all that matters. So mm -hmm. when Jesus says, when you pray, don't pray in public like the Pharisees do to be seen, but go to your closet and shut the door. So a lot of people wanting to obey Jesus, listen to him, 
they they do that, but then they have no category for someone like Daniel, who's opening the windows and praying as an act of civil disobedience. Right. So these so if if you are someone who um, reads the Sermon on the Mount and then would say, "Hey Daniel, it's your fault for getting arrested and, th- <laughs> and thrown in the lion's den because right. you should have put on your mask, right? Right. Yeah. You yeah. should have shut shut the windows. You should have offered uh, at least on that that time. Should you know, have obeyed. Yeah. Right. You should have obeyed. But no, the uh, the whole point is Jesus is saying this is what matters, and you are doing it for all the wrong reasons. Hmm. Uh, the Pharisees they desired. To, they want to go around these long flowing robes. They want to be uh, given these greetings. They want to sit at the places of honor. Mm. And Jesus says, woe to you for, for doing that. But, but if you look at each of those things individually, it's like there's not anything like inherently wrong about wearing a long robe. If you were, you know, right. it'd be weird now. But, right, uh, right. Or having the, the seat at the head of the table or mm-hmm. by being greeted or being called teacher, right? We, yeah. We we give respect by calling people doctor or mister. And he's actually going to talk about titles. Yeah. And so uh, we have to be careful as we read the New Testament to not misinterpret what Jesus is saying, to make him say what what this error is, that all that matters is what you do in your own mind privately. Hmm. But no, that religion also externalizes itself in all, hmm. in all kinds of ways. Yeah. Uh, he's going to talk about honor here. So we're getting to the practical uh, kind of question of what does household piety look like. And uh, I wanted to just make one comment on uh, something he says on page 96. He says, uh, piety, uh, establishing household piety is not something you can delegate to your wife, not because she lacks intelligence or desire, but because in the very act of delegating it, you communicate something to your children. You say that piety is not important enough for a father to deal with directly. Hmm. And I thought, okay, that's something we should ponder um, as husbands or even just as anyone who has any kind of authority. What you delegate uh, says something about what's important um, and not just what's important, but what you need to deal with directly. So, Mm -hmm. um, and I thought that's really insightful that... It's like if your wife is the only one responsible for maintaining order yeah. or if she's the only one doing the spanking mm-hmm. and if your kid grows up having never been spanked by dad, mm-hmm. um, okay, there's something probably going on there where yeah. it, where you might be delegating something that you shouldn't be delegating. So that, that's something yeah. I want to think about more and, and think, okay, what thing tasks do I want to give to my wife? Mm. And, and this, these are deeply meaningful things, uh, but I need to delegate them. And what things maybe do I need to reserve for myself and make the time yeah. to do? And, and as my son grows up and whatever other kids God gives us, that's something I, I think we should all need to be, be thinking about. Yeah, I think it really manifests the principle of, of like what you believe is going to come out of your fingertips. Like what you really believe, kind of what you're saying, what is important to you, you're going to be you're going to be actually putting skin in the game yeah. in the action. We, in my white horse hall class, we've been chatting about. Uh, we just did faith. We talked about what is true faith, and so we kind of broke down. You know the the basic distinction of yeah. you know you've got content and intellectual assent and trust. You know actual uh, and, and you know you can have uh, you know in the kind of reformed tradition content of the faith, 
uh, and you can even believe that it's true. But if there's no overflow, there's no trust, there's no ownership where it affects your will, mm -hmm. then there's a question mark over whether it's true faith. And I think it's that same principle of, yeah, so if you really believe that man is king over his space, that he has a kingdom, that he is the priest of his house, and yet you're letting someone else do all the priestly duties, mm -hmm. then you can ask that same question. Okay, you're saying it's true. <laughs> you say there's one God. Yeah. You do well. Yeah. Even the demons believe. Like, great, you can answer the quiz. And, and that's, you know, there's a lot of conversations about the machismo um, sort of uh, in Christian circles. But even, you know, uh, or what, who was it, Michael Foster that was chatting about it? Uh, it talks about machismo guys as, as LARPing. Yeah. Whereas, like, you can put a lot of talk behind and even a lot of, you know, face to you being the man of the house. Yeah. But ultimately, it's going to come down to these sort of exterior, you know, externalized practices of religion. Yeah. Just like Jesus is going to say, uh, you know, you give a cup of cold water to a child, you did it unto me. And on the last day, you know, I'll say to you, you know, you visited me in prison and you'll say, when did we visit you in prison? And, and so forth. He said, you did, when you did it to the least of these, you were doing it unto me. And so your, your good works are evidencing your, your faith. Yeah. And I think that's, uh, you know, a lot of reform people get that wrong where they deny that good works have any place. But no, we want to say yeah. good works are the necessary, necessary fruit uh, of our faith. Um, he's then going to go into, um, I think he's got like four kind of ways of establishing this household piety and especially uh, having honor, like being having a culture of honor in your home. So he says, how do you teach honor without demanding it? That's the trick, right? So God, uh, God demands to be honored. He's, you know, the first commandment is, you know, you, you have no other gods before him. He's, he's the highest thing. And the, the fifth commandment to honor your own parents, he says is kind of the hinge between uh, the first table and the second table. And it kind of is that middleman command that informs, uh, you know, loving your, right. your neighbors. And so he says, let's say you need to teach honor without demanding it of your children or your wife or whoever. And this also reminds me of our conversation about gravity. It's just like, how do you develop gravity? Well, you can't just demand people treat you with gravity and respect just like you can't demand to be treated with honor so how do you do it he says number one honor your own parents even if they weren't very good parents yeah um you, you take care of them you you're grateful for what good things they did do and insofar as you're able you cover their sins you cover their transgression you you cover them like noah's sons covered him uh, when yeah. he was drunk. Uh, the second thing you do is honor your wife. Uh, and he says, keep in mind that since she is your body, her honor reflects well on you. So it's like, if you dishonor your wife, you are dishonoring yourself. Yeah. And this is one of the things I, I hear Mike Lawyer talk about all the time when he does his marriage counseling. It's like, when you're fighting, when you're arguing, when you're demeaning your wife or your, or your husband, yeah. both directions, you are demeaning yourself. If you are one, anything you do to them, you're doing to yourself. Yep. And it's like, why would you punch yourself in the face? Yeah. Why would you demean yourself like that? And if you've ever been around when a husband and wife are cutting each other down or like giving the little jabs, mm. you, it's just like, 
you lose respect for both of them. Yeah. And there, I mean, the whole thing sinks. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so we, we want to be in this mutual upbuilding, as, as Paul would say. Uh, what are the other two uh, uh, things that he says for honor? I only saw th oh, there it is. I was like, I only see three, but there it is. It was hidden. There wasn't a little yeah. natural end. In. <laughs> well, the next one is that you should honor those in authority, even when you disagree with them. And this is a, well, this is a hot button topic right now. Yeah. Right? We just had Pastor Doug give his talk on civil authority and magistrate and how do you, how do you navigate these thorny legal issues. Yeah. Um, uh, so those are hard conversations in those questions, but you see a more readily available example in things like, you know, boss situations, employer, and in the home, in between a husband and wife, right? There, there are uh, times where a wife may disagree with her husband, and what he's saying isn't sinful, and so he's not calling her to sin, he's not, you know, commanding her to sin against God, yeah. and so she should submit to him, and she should not submit to him in a way where, you know, you know, it, um, that sort of huffy attitude, and you're like, oh, you're doing the thing, but you really don't want to do it, because that wouldn't be honoring. So, yeah. in the same way, you know, when our boss asks us to do something, and we think, well, it's probably not a good idea, and in fact, I think I've got a better idea, but he's not calling you to do anything immoral, and you've voiced your opinion, then there's a time where you say, no, you're, you're the boss. Yeah. You're, you're paying me. I'm going to honor you. I'm not going to talk bad about you. And even if your thing fails, what I'm not going to do is hold it over your head yeah. and be like, I told you so, because that wouldn't be honoring. Yeah. Uh, and then finally, we have what? Honor the Lord your God. And this gets back to what we talked about with gravitas, right? In the same way that we gain gravity by ascribing the ultimate authority to God and coming into his orbit, yeah. we um, sort of gain that honor um, when we honor God in our household. And that's the whole point of us being priests of the house, is yeah. that we are protect not protecting in a not protecting in a sort of um, puny sense like God needs to be protected, but we are honoring his name as holy. Yeah. We're, we're honoring him the way he's he's uh, deserves. Yeah. Uh, he closes with maybe the most interesting and probably controversial section. <laughs> I was thinking if I if I posted or some of these quotes on in, on uh, Instagram, on Facebook or Twitter, uh, I would I would maybe lose some friends uh, over it. And uh, so he's going to start with some that okay, maybe are more acceptable. He says, uh, you need to have uh, you need to institute and guard symbols of authority. And he says, you must insist on titles. So he says, dad is acceptable. If the world manages to get on its feet again, we may see a revival of father. All other adults should be ma'am and sir. And I really like this sentence. He says, your children graduate to first names with grown-ups when they can vote, drive, and serve in the army. <laughs> I love it. So, Classic. So, yeah, that's kind of his, you know, policy. And we could maybe say uh, we differ with him on, on some of that. Uh, but... Uh, uh, there, there is something to this, right? Yeah. Being called uh, Mr. or Sir. So I appreciate when I go to a classical Christian classroom and they call me Mr. Ventura. Yeah. Uh, and I think, okay, this is, this is the culture of honor. And even if they don't mean it, mean it, it, it is meaningful right. to continue to use that title. And when you, when you jettison the title, you're... You're kind of cowing to the spirit of egalitarianism at times. Hey, say dude. We're, hey, bro. Yeah. Right. And everybody is the same. Yeah. You know. There's no distinction. Right. 
Um, so, so this helps. So titles, symbols. So I like this is this is why we want to call people with their titles. At the same time, uh, Jesus says you need to you should call no one father, no, call no man teacher. So there's a sense in which we need to guard against the emptiness of using titles for mm -hmm. sinful purposes, but while still honoring our father and mother. Or right, you know, Paul called himself, "I am an apostle." Mm -hmm. Right. That's there's a special distinction uh, for him. Then he gets into some other more interesting things. Uh, he says, you need to create separate space and time that signifies your office. And I like this. He says, you know, you, you need a chair. Well, maybe he doesn't say you need a chair. He just, he just describes that he has uh, this vaulted ceiling. And this is great. When we interviewed him, he yeah. actually showed us pictures of this really and cool. it's pretty dope. Yeah. Like, it's great. Yeah. So, I, I would put some respect on, yeah. on if, I, if yeah. I walk in. I'm like, wow, this is sweet. Yeah. Uh, so, it's, it's kind of this central even section of the home, uh, you can't ignore it. Yeah. Um, he says, I crowned it by putting in a large leather chair. Everyone knows this is my office and that this is my chair. I have other chairs in the house, the one at the head of the table, for example, and another leather chair by the hearth. Um, here's something that just occurred to me as I'm writing this. I have never walked in on one of my children or even my wife sitting in one of my chairs. And I don't recall ever telling them they shouldn't. They just don't. Love. And Sean and I were actually talking about this before we were recording, and he he actually mentioned the same thing, that you know even his dad had kind of this just little desk. It was kind of off in the corner, and that's where he would do some of the business, you know, bills stuff like that. Mm. Um, and he just there's just this intuitive sense of I don't that's dad's, dad's chair. That's dad's chair. Yeah, I don't sit there. Mm -hmm. And uh, it, it reminds me back to Noah again. So it says, uh, sorry, who's the one that uh, uncovers his nakedness? Is it Canaan or it's, Ham? It's, it's uh, Ham. His Ham, grandson is. Yeah, his, yeah, his, his grandson is Canaan. Yeah. So, so there's debate over what exactly was the sin that Ham committed. Because it just says uh, Noah got drunk in his tent and Ham went in and uncovered his nakedness. Right. Now, some people are like, did he just look at him right. while he was naked? He did he like sodom Did he yeah. sodomize his dad? Um, and, and I tend to think what he actually did was had sex with his mom. Right. And, and this is because in Leviticus, when it talks about, it uses this exact same language of, you shall not uncover the nakedness of, and it says, you shall not uncover the nakedness of your dad. Yeah. And it's referring to having sex with your, your mom. So yep. this incestuous thing. But it's not just about that's gross. What it is, is a uh, the, the garment, your clothes, is a symbol of your office. Right. It's, it's a robe of, of office. Just like Joseph was given a special robe that assigned his office that was different right. from his brother's. So what Ham was actually doing was usurping... Right the office of his father. And you see, this is what uh, Absalom does when David leaves uh, Jerusalem and he leaves his concubines behind. And what do the, his bros tell him to do? You need to go pitch a tent on top of the, you know, where everyone can see. Yeah. And you're going to go into all of your dad's concubines. Right. And it's not just because, oh, the concubines are hot and I want to have sex with them. No, no yeah. it's it's a symbol it's a of, thing. yeah, it's a, yeah. it's a power play. And so similarly, uh, we, we want to have these, these boundaries and you would, tr so a kid who wants to rebel against his dad, what is he going to do? He's going to go sit in his dad's chair, right? Just like it would be disrespectful if I'm sitting in pastor Doug's 
chair down in his, in in his, his office. office. Right. And yeah. I'm just sitting there with my feet up on the table. What am I connoting? Oh, this is my space. I just right. pick up my feet like I want it. You're disrespecting the office. Yeah, you're disrespecting yeah. the office. So I think we all have some sense of this, and we want to recover uh, some of that. He's going to say this is kind of the the, the of, mystique of it. Yeah, it's a, it's a type of sacred space too, right? Yes. Obviously, and analogously, because again, we are, you know, lowercase g gods, yeah. right? We're we're many. We're made in his image. And so, yeah, the office is tied together with that idea of space. Yeah. And, and if you think back to the tabernacle, what do you have in the most holy place? You have a mercy seat, a place, a, throne, uh, yeah. a, a chair uh, to sit in. Um, lastly, we'll end with this section. He says, you also must become inaccessible on a regular <laughs> basis. Um, he says, to inspire awe, you must, you must do this. Even your wife should ask permission to enter. I recommend using the time for scripture or great books or even planning the day. Okay. Uh, <laughs> so this is where you may disagree? Yeah. Or? Uh, so, so I was I thinking know. about this, and I have to say, I'm not quite sure if I agree with C.R. Wiley. So I, I agree with the principle of uh, there's a time and a place to be inaccessible. I think we right. should have private spaces, just like you uh, have your, your bedroom is a private place. And you probably should have a lock on the door so your kids don't accidentally walk in on you yeah. to protect you. And, and you know, maybe to especially protect your children from ever even seeing that, right? Yeah, yeah. Who would want to ever walk in on, on that? Yikes. Um, so uh, there is something about being scarce. Yes. He's going he's gonna to say. Um, and, and here's kind of my take on this. This is my governing principle as I'm uh, early into fatherhood and, and being the man of my household. Hmm. I, I pray, uh, and, and I, I take this as my job, is to reflect what God the Father is like to my children. Mm-hmm. So, I, so I have to think, how does God the Father act towards me, his son? Mm-hmm. How does God the Father treat Jesus, his son? Because I'm connected to him. And uh, there's a certain sense in which God is in heaven and I am on earth. So let your words be few. Mm-hmm. So that, that's a proverb. And there's also a sense in which through Christ, in, in Christ, we have access into the most holy place. We can come in. Now, you're going to have people who want to uh, use that throne room access like they're the kid who can come in, sit in dad's office chair, kick their feet up like they're like they own the place. There's proximity, but there's no reverence. Exactly. That's Lewis is in Letters to Malcolm. He he, he talks about this very same thing. OK. Yeah, yeah I, I didn't know that. And, that. and I like that distinction, proximity and what's the other? Without reverence. Without reverence. Yeah. So we want to uh, if that's what it takes to have reverence in your home. OK, I say do it. That's important. And and I personally. So uh, back when I lived by myself, it was it was really nice because if I wanted to pray, I had I could pray anywhere, right? Yeah. And no no one to to bother me. Mm-hmm. Uh, when I had an office, no no one to bother me. Now it's like okay, there's a baby crying in there. There's my wife, maybe she's cooking over there, and uh, you know trying to take care. And I'm like, okay, where could I actually go and pray? Yeah. And you see Jesus actually fleeing the crowds, leaving his disciples. Mm-hmm. Why? So he could be inaccessible. Yeah. To go and talk to his father. And mm-hmm. so uh, I, I'm getting ready to move in a couple of weeks. And one of the things I'm really looking forward to is there will be a extra bedroom where we can put you know workout equipment stuff like that. 
but I'm mainly looking forward to using that room yeah. as my time to to pray in the morning without the the noise of mm. and have that kind of private space. Mm. Um, so, so I think uh, th- that's kind of my guiding principle is I want to reflect what God the Father is like. And in order to do that, I have to have a really clear biblical understanding of how God treats me. Mm-hmm. And then the same thing with um, now towards my wife. I'm not my wife's father. No, I'm her husband. And so I, I ask the question, how does Christ treat the church? Yeah. And that's my governing principle for uh you know, so uh, if if God gives us a command, I got to go do it cheerfully. And there's a sense in which if I give my wife a command, I want her to go do that cheerfully. Yeah. And the same thing. There's the closest of proximity there. You're, you're one flesh. But there also needs to be reverence and honor. Hmm. And the way I get that from my wife is not by demanding it, but by honoring God, pr- praying together, leading the home, but also by honoring her and respecting her right. space as well. So if I want her to ask before she comes in to the room, I also ask in certain times. Sure. Where, where, or let's say uh, we uh, some people want to have more porous boundaries in the relationship. Well, you can erect walls by even you asking, uh, is it all right if I go do this? And right. you're teaching them to do the same back to you. So yeah. uh, that's my take. Do you have any uh, other uh, opinions on this? Yeah, I mean, so I think I think that's really good. And I would, I would agree whether or not the application falls down to, you know, you have to be inaccessible, right? It would be because one, on one level, all he's simply saying is there needs to be this, again, separation that's yeah. very present in the culture of the household, yes. right? So he, he doesn't say, go to your office, lock the door, and if your kids are banging on it, you ignore them, right? right? So he doesn't say that. Yeah. Um, at the same time, I think, yeah, cashing it out in the over, under, overlying? Over or under? Either. Yeah. Way. yeah. <laughs> over I think they would both mean the same thing. <laughs> Underlying <laughs> or overlying. <laughs> Principles of, of sacred time, or sorry, sacred space and sacred time. Yeah. And one of the things I was thinking about, because um, he says, I use that time to read scripture or to plan the day mm-hmm. um, and that sort of thing. I think that's the key principle there is just as the man is sort of responsible for cultivating the privacy, the inner sanctum, that sort of um, as you're moving in and in, you're moving closer to piety. Uh, so he also needs to not be led around by the pace of his family. Yeah. Right. So he's the one setting the, the, the pace, yeah. the time, the clock for his family. He's not just sort of being pulled around by what their family are doing because, again, he's called to lead them. He's called to, uh, yeah, I like that analogy, just set the pace. He's called to be the one who's orchestrating and organizing and setting the trajectory for the household. Yeah. And so whatever way that looks like, kind of what you're saying, if it's, yeah, you've got this separate room or, you know, you're at, your, you're at work, you're at your office and you're, you're taking dominion, not simply of this physical locality, but also the time of yeah. your family, I think you're in line with what he's saying. Yeah. Uh, maybe one of the best things I did during the my courtship with with Ellen was uh, we just kind of had this rule that if we had not spent time in the word, time in prayer, uh, we wouldn't spend time together. And th- and that was something that I imposed. So so I I wanted her to be growing in a relationship with God because I believe that Unless that was happening, our relationship is not going. So I'm, I was teaching her in our courtship 
what was most important. And I was making very clear to her that not only is God way more important than she is, God is way more important than I am. Mm-hmm. And so I, I just created this rule. And that's one of the things yeah. I advise a lot of guys who are courting or trying to, to win a girl is you need to be challenging her to be growing. But you're also, you're also saying that you are not the big the biggest thing in the world yeah right uh uh, neither you nor her are sufficient to hold the weight of the household you need something bigger and so by ascribing and and both holding to something bigger god honoring him over one another it that's the alignment Mm. that that puts everything else in order and that's how you have piety yeah um, i think in the home all right, we'll close with that. Uh, Jacob, what should people do this week? Well, whatever people do this week, they should get that wisdom and they should build that house. Build that house. Peace.